Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1137. Let's go straight to the corkboard. Events at ID10T.com for the ID10T community corkboard. Like Aaron, who writes, Hey, I made a thing to try to help un-F the earth. <laughs> nice job, Aaron. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Aaron says, I'll be offering virtual sustainable life coaching as well as other services, all virtual. If anyone is interested, you can visit my site at sustainablelifecoaching.com to get more info, uh, sustainablelifecoaching.com. Uh, thank you for sharing, Aaron. Great job. And uh, we'll check that out. And it's events at id10t.com for anyone else who has a thing that they would like to uh, share or put on the corkboard. This episode... Uh, to say this guest is a bucket list guest is an extreme understatement. Uh, Danny Elfman is just one of those guys that has done so many amazing things and uh, certainly was very inspiring to me for a significant portion of my life. I was a huge Oingo Boingo fan growing up. Um, all of his soundtrack work is is like... When you go on and look at all of his credits, there's a lot of a lot of them you probably know, and then other ones that you're like, oh my god, I didn't realize he did that too. But um, I, I guess I don't know when it came out, maybe late '80s, early '90s. But there was a CD of all of his um, soundtrack work up to that point called "Music for a Darkened Theater," and it's just like iconic thing after iconic thing after iconic thing, and uh, I listened to it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> over and over and over and over. It's hard to imagine like a, a musical world without Danny Elfman. Just the Simpsons theme alone, not to mention everything else. And so, you know, I'd never met Danny before. I didn't, hadn't really seen him in long form interviews a lot before. So I didn't know what to expect. And he was awesome. I mean, just the coolest, you know, like I, it was such a wonderful conversation about, and again, very open about his uh, his life and his uh, his career and different projects and great information that I've never heard before and uh, and uh, and I'm I'm a fan I'm a big fan and uh, now I'm a fan of his personally because he just could not have been cooler and nicer and uh, to me in this episode so if you're even a casual Danny Elfman fan or any of the you know hundred plus films that he's done or an Oingo Boingo fan there's definitely something in here for you but also just great life and Advice too. So thank you to Danny Elfman for just being uh, amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, are, are we friends? I don't know. In my head, I feel like we became friends during this podcast. It was just, it was just really easy to connect with, and I, I really, really cherish this. I, this, this will, I will, I, I will place this podcast and just nestle it in my heart uh, forever. Um, by the way. Uh, if you're in Southern California, or even if not, even if you want to come into town for this, at the Bank of California Stadium, October 29 and 31 of 2021, October 29, October 31, 2021, um, you can see uh, either of those two shows or both for the live-to-film concert experience of Disney's timeless holiday classic, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. So he's doing two shows of Nightmare Before Christmas live, which they're making into a live uh, film concert experience. So... I don't know why you would miss that. (laughs) It sounds amazing. And uh, so you can go online and get tickets and info for that. And then also um, his first album in 37 years, The Big Mess, came out. And it's really cool. And I highly recommend that you go onto YouTube and watch all the videos because they really elevate the experience and add this whole wonderful visual dimension. And, you know, Danny works in so many different mediums that uh, it just it works together really beautifully. And as I say in the podcast, like... He's been writing stuff for other people for so long. It was really cool to see, like, oh, this is what he did for himself. Uh, so that's the big mess available now and the videos on YouTube and Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas uh, live at Bank of California Stadium, October 29 and 31. So thank you to uh, my new friend. Can I say that? I don't know, but I'm gonna. Uh, Danny Elfman. (laughs) Whether or not it's true, I'm gonna say it. (laughs) And just believe that that's the case. Uh, And here is now the ID10T podcast number 1137 with Mr. Danny Elfman. And it delights me to no end to say those words uh, as we roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. These things are in the background. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see all of that. I can. I I can't say that our collection rivals Richard Kraft's former collection, um, but uh, we did pick up a couple things from his auction. Oh, did he get any good, tasty, tasty things? I'm sure. I I didn't get any of the big stuff. All the big stuff went for. I, we knew it was going to go for a lot, but. It, but a lot of the big stuff went for ungodly amounts of money. Like ride cars went for like three hundred and fifty grand. It was like, it was insane. Um, but my wife's great grandfather owned the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner newspaper, and I got like the original. He had a framed. Uh, one of the Imagineers had made concept art from Disneyland, and when it opened in nineteen fifty five, and it ran in the Herald Examiner. So I bought that from the link to her family and because of Disneyland and it's hanging in our bedroom, this big, beautiful. Oh, piece. that's cool though. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. But that guy's, that guy's setup was insane. Yeah. Pretty, pretty ridiculous. My, my, uh, Disney memorabilia is just really Jack and, uh, barrel. 
Oh, nice. Do you how are they are they full sized? Uh, well, barrel barrel is just a head, but Jack's full sized, and oh. um, they keep trying to uh, restore him. But you know the original puppets, they do start to disintegrate. Right. Um, yeah. Promotion, and uh, you know, sadly, they're just not made to last. I know. I I've seen I've seen like original Star Wars puppets. And it just it just looks like a desiccated you know they just look like desiccated corpses because they just like the foam just hardens and it disintegrates it's really sad. So I, I've like tried uh, two times already. No, I mean he's in good shape, but you know he's gone through two restorations and uh, um, so it's just gonna, it's an effort goes into keeping him together. Um, your, your nephew Bodie, who I actually weirdly just ran into two days ago, he just popped into Los Angeles for a minute because he said he hadn't seen his dad in like a year and a half. Um, the first time he came to our house, we live in this Spanish house with a bunch of vintage taxidermy and horror movie props and stuff. And he goes, oh my God, you should see my uncle Danny's house. He has a lot of the same stuff. (laughs) But then when your house was on the market, a lot of the pictures ran, I think maybe an architectural digest, and it just looked absolutely stunning. Yeah, I mean, my, my, one of the things my wife and I bonded over was uh, taxidermy. You know, we both happen to have taxidermy collections. Now, there are different kinds of collections. Mine, you know, uh, because I don't approve of hunting. Right. But, um, my taxidermy collection is primarily 19th century. Yes. You know, like I go for the old stuff. I love Victorian taxidermy. Um, hers was, you know, a little bit like, ooh, that's kind of naughty, but it had a historical value because it was things that came from her godfather and her father. So, um, like there was one piece that, you know, Henry Fonda, uh, had and another piece that, uh, um, I think it was from a hunting trip with John Houston and, you know, that (laughs) kind of stuff and. So it's like, all right, you know, it's gotta like. It's historical. Yeah, it's historical. <laughs> it's historical in the way that the Victorian stuff is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, her godfather is Larry Hagman, the you know, the, Larry Hagman, the actor from Dallas and of course. TV and all that. And uh, he he had a lot of stuff also, and she got. Oh my god. That's the, the the bonding over taxidermy, the vintage taxidermy. I had the same thing with my wife, and we each had pieces. And when we got together, our collection doubled. Uh, and it is, and I think it's just because both of us had the same experience of going to natural history museums when we were kids, and always just feeling like I want to live here. I love the dioramas. Yeah. I love the you know in our living room, I have a forty thousand year old cave bear skeleton that's fully assembled, and it just feels like. I don't know what it is. It just feels very cozy to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. You know, I always felt like I was born out of my time that I should have, you know, been some kind of 19th century something. I, I collect Victorian scientific instruments. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of microscopes and optical instruments from the uh, 19th century and, uh, of course, taxidermy. Uh, prize pieces for me are from a taxidermist named Potter. Um, and Potter was famous for the creating these dioramas with uh, little animals sitting around the table playing cards, that kind of thing. You know, it yep. was very 19th century. And he he swears he never killed an animal. That, so they were just found. Yeah, found. Exactly. And I have like a, a little 
puppy that's like a potter puppy in a little diorama that's like mid 19th century it's like ah oh, fantastic you know potter puppies makes it sound really cute no oh, you got a potter puppy oh well it's a <laughs> and then the, the curious thing is the stuff that got confiscated because i had a guy in london that i always used to see and i i remember shipping back uh two birds both 19th century one was a bird of paradise and the other was very cool but it was just a common everyday bird and uh, they let the bird of paradise go but the common bird they confiscated and they said it's migratory i said but it's migratory 150 years ago really and they they said no too bad it's going to be destroyed and you know it's ending up in some custom agent's house (laughs) (laughs) it's my collection of confiscated migratory birds it's a very specific collection and and to destroy this stuff just seems like oh what a shame Uh, maybe it's also there's also the celebrity element of like i confiscated this from danny elfman like maybe there's a whole (laughs) you know he has a whole collection of weird tech of my confiscated yeah he's like you he's got all this stuff he said all of this was confiscated from danny elfman's library (laughs) (laughs) but when you think about the victorian era i was just i was having this conversation recently about the uh the memento mori photographs and the fascination with you know, the fascination with death, because obviously they were, I feel like it was so much more in their faces in the Victorian era. And this new technology of photography allowed them to, in essence, like capture the souls of the recently departed and all this very bizarre, but I really do understand where they would just like pose these, the recently deceased in these very casual, sometimes ethereal poses but of course, at that time, that technology would allow them to never forget who their loved ones were. No, I, I have quite a bit of those uh, glass plates, 19th century glass plates, and a lot of them are corpses. Um, yeah. And um, also things made of hair. Just oh, yeah. That they weave it into artwork. And I have like uh, three or four of those as well. They, they did, you know, it was an interesting time. I always thought that I kind of belonged like 1880s, 1870s, England, you know, somebody who kind of spends his time going between the opium den, which, you know, which you would like say hello to the judges and other, because that's kind of what they did in the evening. And, um, and, you know, the opera. See, and that sort of perfectly encapsulates because you have these two very disparate worlds coming together and i think it's just the one thing that i've always gravitated toward your work it's just this this sort of like perfectly balanced dissonance of there's like a happy uh there's a happy stratum but then it's held together by this dark undertone underneath and the balance of that dissonance I think is what allows it to exist the way that it exists. So to hear you say opium den in the opera feels like that, that totally tracks with what I would think. Well, um, thank you. Uh, it makes more sense to me now too. Well, I've always, I, because I, I know some details about uh, your, you know, your life and your evolution as, as an artist. And you really initially were a science guy, like your initial, pursuit was science when you were in school is this yeah when i when i was in like uh middle school it was all science and i wanted to be a radiation biologist if you'd asked me when i was 14 and um 
I actually had uh, nuclear isotopes in my room. And um, in the 60s, you could actually order them directly from the Atomic Energy Commission. They would arrive with these cool canisters with the that three-sided Atomic Energy Commission, Atomic Energy logo. And I would order cobalt-90 and stro- strontium-90, cobalt-60, um, test sand, um, nuclear explosion test sand from Nevada they would sell in packets. Oh, my this God. This is two kids. <laughs> and I would uh, borrow steel syringes from my diabetic grandfather because he had like boxes and boxes of, of them. And I you know, could pick up a couple when I was over on the weekends. And I would uh, inject insects with radioactive isotopes. <laughs> you were you were hoping to create like a like a like super spiders and and some... yeah, I mean, all I really did was kill a lot of flies. But you know, <laughs> my attempt to create some kind of like crazy fly mutant, uh, you know, can was unsuccessful. Now, do you feel like the disappointment of those? Yeah, but was was the disappointment from those failed experiments? I think it was like, ah, all right, okay, I guess I'll go into music. I don't know. I guess I haven't created the super insect. You know, it was really just the luck of luck of chance. Um, you know, in my between middle school and high school, um, my parents were school teachers, but my mother, like at forty, decided to pursue a writing career, which was, I think, you know, very bold for you know every English teacher dreams of being a writer, and she was an English teacher, high school. Yeah. And um, she pursued it and she actually sold her first book and it was made into a movie. And so suddenly they had a little extra cash and, uh, you know, it wasn't like a mega windfall or anything, but it was enough to like move to a house in West LA. I grew up in Baldwin Hills here in Los Angeles. Okay. okay. And uh, suddenly I was going to a new high school, all new friends starting from scratch. Um, you know, my friends that I elementary school and middle school all off the other schools and um, I just happened to fall in with a group of miscreants that were artistic and musical. And um, I think that's the only reason I'm in music now. It's like they were all into music and I wasn't. And it's like they got me interested. So one of my friends was a trumpet player and he was also a, an avant-garde composer at 17, at 16. And um, he turned me on to classical music. He, he was the one who turned me on to Stravinsky and turned the whole world around. And one of my other good friends was a drummer. And he was the one that was crazy, like most drummers. And, you know, now he's like a, 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 one of the best percussionists in the, in, this, in the Bay Area that, you know, has pieces written for him. He, like he's totally legit. And, and um, it was just a very musical group. Um, my high school girlfriend uh, went on to start Sonic Youth. And, um, you know, literally, when I was in the Mystic Nights, you know, being, doing this crazy theater stuff, which is what I fell into, she was off like, kind of starting this incredible art band. So the influence was them on me. Um, and I decided uh, secretly to pick up an instrument my last year of high school because I was going to travel around the world for a year. And I had become a fan of a 1930s guitarist named Django Reinhardt. Of course, yes. And his fiddler was a, a gypsy fiddler named Stefan Grappelli. And I was enamored with Stefan Grappelli's violin playing. 
And so um, it occurred to me, I can take a violin with me, you know, I, and my friend made help me make a little backpack for it, you know, and I actually traipsed all over Africa for a year with a violin on my back, which is ridiculous. Um, a flute would have been so much easier. <laughs> I was not a flute or a recorder. A recorder is a pretty, pretty simple light instrument. Exactly. How about penny whistle? A penny whistle would be great. A kazoo, you know. I, I wanted to do the violin. So I actually kind of taught myself violin. And, and then by the time I got back to L.A., um, I was, you know, now a fiddle player with musical aspirations. I, I, I landed in Paris before I went to Africa. My brother was there and I actually got hired to uh, do a little tour with a musical theatrical troupe in Paris called Le Grand Magic Circus um, as their fiddler, violin player. Oh my gosh. And I'd only been playing for five months. I mean, it was crazy, but it got performing into my blood. And uh, so my brother started the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo and uh, he recruited me the day I was home from Africa to become its quote musical director. Now, this is a musical director of a street troupe <laughs> you know, we performed and passed the hat, you know, and I did that for seven years. Oh, wow. And I was a fire breather and I learned trombone and I started writing. I taught myself to write. And uh, the group, the troupe became quite proficient by the end of its run. But uh, it was all luck of the draw. It was all like nothing was planned. I didn't plan to become a performer. I didn't plan to get into music. I sure as hell didn't plan on becoming a film composer. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. No, but but you made choices along, like when you saw opportunities open, because that, that, that to me is really interesting to see the sort of repetitive pattern of you're along one path and then all of a sudden this this odd opportunity opens up and then you just take this kind of right turn between you know science music music to street performing street performing to rock band rock band to film composer like they're all you know like you can kind of see the path 
But seeing all of these elements come together of like, oh, yes, circus performing and street performing and visual arts, like it almost was like music as part of this larger kind of, you know, 360 degree experience rather than just, oh, I pursued music. It was really it seems like it was part of this kind of artistic endeavor. And that was a piece of it. Well, I, I, I mean, I suppose to me, it just felt like I kept falling into everything. You know, I'd be along a path. And then suddenly I'd see like this weird door open and I'd go, what the fuck? I'm just going to go through that door. And so really most of my life was essentially, what the fuck? I'll try that. Um, and that really defines my early years and, and to a certain extent now. Um, yeah, but don't you think that that is probably because I, I think sometimes at first glance, those types of opportunities seem accidental. But it seems to me you're making choices based on like, oh, I'm just kind of following what is interesting and fun to me. And there isn't really anything. You're not really chasing it. It doesn't seem like you're chasing anything. No, no, I'm not chasing anything. Uh, I'm but I'm totally OCD in the sense that I get really, really into something. Then I see something shiny off on the side. And I said, ooh, that looks good. And I just totally switch. So it's like, you know, I was like science, science, science. Oh, I want to be a performer. Okay, I'm in the streets. I'm doing this. That, that, that. Oh, I'm gonna turn it into a multimedia theatrical troupe. I'm in that. Da, 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 da. I hear ska music from England. I say, forget all that. I want to start a ska band. <laughs> and um, and then suddenly, you know, Tim Burton arrives with a film, and it's like, oh yeah, uh, whatever. I'll try that. But it really is just like shiny object. It's like, ooh, that looks neat. What's that? And because I have such a short <laughs> attention span, I'm obsessive, but I also have a, a very short attention span. So I get attracted to something suddenly that never occurred to me, seems completely attractive. And, and now that's what I want to totally commit myself to. And fortunately, the OCD side of my personality really forced me to whatever I did, I did really obsessively. So... I mean, I may sound very flippant because it all was, it was random and flippant, but whatever, what each of the things I was doing, I was working super, super, super hard at. So, um, but then I would just like the next year change my mind and just apply my, all that energy to something completely opposite, you know, uh, which made no sense. But I mean, those, those two defects in my brain wiring, and I have many, but those are two of them. Um, work to my advantage, finally, in the end, now that I look back with hindsight. Well, yeah, because I think that there, there was traditional thinking that would say, it, certainly in previous generations, like, oh, you know, you focus on one thing and then you perfect that, you know, oh, you do a bunch of different stuff, you'll never master anything. And I don't really subscribe to that because I think when you look back, at your career, it's like you, you see the story of it unfold. Maybe in the moment, it's like, well, this guy was doing this. And now he's doing this. But when you look back now and you see the landscape of this, like he got to do this and that evolved into this and that led to this and that led to this is so much more interesting than just like, yeah, I did one thing for like 60 years, you know? No, but that's cool, too, though. So, I mean, there is no right or wrong way. So I also really admire I have friends that are composers that went to school and studied so hard to learn composition and all the things they needed and eventually worked their way into becoming successful. And I admire that tremendously too. It's focused. 
Yeah. I just didn't take that route, but I don't look down on that at all. I mean, I still, anytime I talk to uh, music students or film music students, which I do, uh, you know, frequently, I just always say, don't use me as an example. Because people go, you don't, you know, you didn't even learn how to read music. You didn't ever took music lessons. And I go, I guarantee you, if you use me as an example, <laughs> you're just making the chances of success 10 to, or 100 times harder for yourself. You know, it's like, I, I did it the way I did it. But I'm also, I don't recommend that for anybody. You know, I said, if you're interested in music, go to fucking music school and whatever you're going to do, whether you go to music school or not, the one thing I really do, you know, they have that old thing about 10,000 hours of work. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I really believe in that, you know, doesn't matter whether it's through schooling or through self-teaching or whatever you do, you got to put in a shit ton of hours yeah. and good at something. And so uh, even though I'm guilty of like, being undisciplined, having no training. I never could music lessons. I just couldn't do it. I literally tried and could not do it. And I just found another way, but I still put in the hours. Yeah. So I think maybe it's, you know, when people say like, oh, I want to follow your path. It's like, well, don't look at the, don't look at the external qualities of what I did. Just look at the fact that I followed, you know, I figured out what I was good at and I followed my instincts and I followed like maybe copy it in that sense. Oh yeah. And the fact that in my twenties, uh, you know, I was waiting tables three, four nights a week and I was rehearsing every night that I wasn't waiting tables and I was hustling to find musicians and keep my group going during the day. I almost never took off time and the amount of partying I did in my twenties. I mean, it's what a lot of people would consider that's an average month. Right. <laughs> and that would be that entire decade of my life. Right. So, um, you know, and, and some would say, well, I don't want to do that. And they wouldn't be wrong either. You know, like taking that approach of like really almost not having a personal life and, uh, is not necessarily a good way to go either, but that is how I kind of approached reality. And uh, for, well, I mean, some people would tell me, Danny, you never changed, you know, like, uh, <laughs> for the last 10 years, I tried to discipline myself to taking Sundays off, mm -hmm. you know, working six days a week instead of seven, but you know, seven day work week was normal for me for a really long time. Well, especially if you're if 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 you have like a hyperkinetic brain that just needs an area to focus on, you know, like it's to think about the concept of like work this many days and not that many days. It's like it's, some brains just don't operate that way. It's like, well, I just have stuff that I want to do and I just need to do it and I need to express it. So you don't really think about it in the sort of constrictive ways of like time. <laughs> it's just like no, I just no. know that I need to do. I know what I need to get done. And when you're like me and you want to do multiple things because of your split personality problems, you know, there, there goes all your free time. If you're going to do two or three pursuits simultaneously, when you're not on one, you're on the other. Right. Which thing you're doing, there's something else that's got a deadline. You know, so for me, in the last uh, eight, nine years, it's been, uh, I switched to uh, concert music, classical music, trying to, so I take off uh, a film every year now um three to four months or sometimes longer to do a uh a, a, what one would call a classical work 
Right. Um, so if I'm not on a film, it's like, oh my God, I got that commission. It's like, I got to get to that now. And I'm, I'm finished with commission. It's like, shit, I got another film starting up. So there ends up being no in between time. Now, of course, it's even more complicated since the big mess uh, in the pandemic and suddenly finding myself, you know, back in that world. It's like, wow, I mean, three things. It's like, <laughs> like how am I going to manage that? It, it is pretty weird and interesting going in a single year between uh, a rock album, the first in a long time, um, a cello concerto. And um, so in a 12 month period, I'll have worked on a film, a uh, concerto, a small chamber work for a percussion uh, quartet and um, and 18 songs for a double album. <laughs> but those are all the different things that satisfied what your brain wanted to accomplish. So it's yeah. the album I needed to do. Um, that wasn't a decision I made that just kind of exploded something I learned while in isolation. And I started doing my vocals for a big mess is that never uh, underestimate the first pass, the first vocals, because a nightmare before Christmas, many years ago, I went in the studio with Tim Burton and I did all the songs in one night, made demos. Oh my God. We did all the voices, every voice, every part, but Sally. So I just sang hi, I sang low, I sang, you know, all kinds of voices. I did all of Jack's voices, uh, vocals. And this one long night did all the demos. And so Henry Selleck can start putting the production together. And like six months or a year later, I'm in the studio now, like I'm used to in front of a great microphone with headphones. Tim's on the other side of the glass and I'm doing the for real vocals. Right? <laughs> And I would do like three, four, five, six passes and do it. And Tim would go, Danny, would you mind if we put on the demo? And we put on the demo and he'd go, uh, I hate to say it, but like the second verse and the choruses, you know, that really sounds better on the demo. <laughs> and I listened and I had to agree. And half of those demo vocals ended up in the movie. Oh, wow. So now when I was sitting down for Big Mess and doing vocals, I was saying, you know what? Maybe I'll recut these. Maybe I won't. But, you know, sometimes the first pass, when it's still really fresh, becomes the one. Now, ultimately, I did about 10% of the vocals again, mostly because I would tweak lyrics and I'd want to like plug in some different lyrics or change something. But 85, 90% of the original stuff, it's like, I don't care. It's slightly out of tune. You know, it's not perfect, but it feels, I like the way it feels. It feels right. It goes on the record. So it, I learned that lesson many years ago, but I, I kept that alive when I was doing the vocals for uh, big mess. Um, you know, I knew that when I was doing the demos, there was a really good chance that those demo vocals were going to be keepers and they were. Well, yeah, because you're not trying to direct it at all. You're just getting it out and expressing it. And the slight, I honestly, this age where everything has to be like quantized and perfect. It's like auto-tuned. Yes, we're sort of missing this, you know, there, there's, there's never, there's just not an artistry in the, in perfectionism, you know, it's like all the most interesting stuff is just, is organic and some of it's a little off center and that's what's fun about it. You know, that's what makes it human. Yeah, exactly. And so that was a kind of a decision that based on that old lesson that Jack Skellington vocals had taught me years ago. So there it is, the past and the future. 
Well, I listened to the um, I listened to it on the they, they sent me the YouTube link and I saw and I'm so glad they did because it's such a the, 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 I, I hope someday you do like a live visual concert with it because it, it the, the videos the songs are really cool but the videos really like elevate them to a whole other level and I sent them to a friend of mine that I knew would really like them and I said you know it's so great because for the longest time this guy has been writing other people's things and it's so cool to see like this is what he did with his own this is this is what his own brain wanted to express for his own thing and that to me is one of the coolest parts about it thank you you know so yeah i mean the it, it has it was interesting i didn't expect when i wrote that first off i didn't know if i was ever going to even release the stuff i was really writing it for me and, uh, and then I decided, all right, you know, let's try to put this down and on tape, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tape anymore. And um, and then suddenly it's like, let's start doing some videos. And seven videos later, and I got an eighth, hopefully coming out in the next month. It's like, that was unexpected completely. But, you know, in a world of pandemic, you can't perform, you can't tour. And it's like, all right, channel that into videos. And for me... That's easy because, you know, I come from theater and theatricality. And so thinking visually is kind of second nature for me. So uh, to kind of like throw myself into that world was kind of like really almost going back to, you know, kind of the fun part of what I used to like many years ago. And when you're in the midst of it, you're just expressing these things without any real plan to me, that always seems like the best way to make stuff because you, you're you not really thinking about, are people going to like this or not like, you don't think about it in terms of approval. You don't think about it in terms of anything. Oh, no. Where- no. In 2020, when I was isolated, you know, at, uh, in this Trumpian world, in a pandemic Trumpian world, it was like a perfect storm of dystopian insanity. And... Uh, you know, and this stuff just had to come out. In fact, I was so shocked. The first song I wrote, it's called Sorry. Um, I I was surprised myself at how much venom I had inside of me. You know, so as soon as I opened my mouth to sing, because I hadn't done a song or lyrics in so long. I mean, and I realized, oh, shit, like this stuff's got to get out of me because, you know, this will kill me because I'm like really angry frustrated right now and you know depression anger frustration you know watching america become a george orwell story like 1984 part two it's almost like the beginning of like this is george orwell wrote this scenario that's happening right now and it's like and i'm in the middle of it so it it was a weird time you know difficult time for me, you know, and I was also, I spent my life in California, living in California, my entire life. You know, I never went to college, so I never went away anywhere. And I started working on the streets when I was 18. So I never got a chance to go anywhere, do anything. And I never stopped working from 18 on. And, um, um, and for the first time in my life, I was thinking, I may have to move, you know, I may have to get my family. And, you know, I'm looking, well, Australia, England, Canada, you know, where do they speak English? Um, You know, I may have to get out of this place because it's just looking crazier and crazier. And so that that's where I was at in 2020. 
And you channeled that. And it was that different than when you were writing for Boingo, what was this sort of the base? Like, was it, okay, we're going to write rock songs? Were you writing kind of from the same places? How did it feel different than this time? The the main difference is most of what I wrote for Oingo Boingo was third person. Um, so, you know, I would say like 80% of it or more, you know, was like taking a character and writing from the standpoint of that character. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started out, people were really confused because I was just out to agitate everybody. So <laughs> I was criticizing the right and the left. And, you know, when I wrote the song, capitalism called middle-class socialist brat and people were saying man you're really like right wing i go no no i am a middle-class socialist brat that's me growing up i'm talking about myself but that doesn't mean and that's a lot of what i did in the oingo boingo days was designed just to agitate one side or the other and it was very frequently done from the standpoint of a character sometimes that character would be kind of me and sometimes another character it's the opposite of me, but not a lot of it was just personal. And when I started big mess, it was the other way around. Most of it was really personal, which is why I wasn't sure I could release it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple of songs like, uh, you know, kick me and one or two others that were like, okay, this is like I used to do in Boingo. I'm falling into a character. This character is like a celebrity who wants to, needs to be loved and kicked and abused at the same time. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, that's the closest I was to how I used to write knowing the Boingo days would be that song. Um, whereas most of the others, it's like, I don't know where this is coming from, but this is definitely not third person. This is just me frustrated and angry and expressing myself. And that's something I wasn't used to. And, and it also made it much more of a question of whether I wanted anybody to hear it or not. Right. Right, right, right. Because it is it is so personal. And and also, do when you put something out that's personal, is there any part of you that's like, oh, I hope people understand or like this? Or are you able to sort of separate and go, when I just put it out there, however it's taken is however I mean, it's taken. At a certain point, you just got to put it out there, however it's taken, exactly as you just said. You know, it's like people will take it as they will. They'll interpret it the way they will. But as an artist, you just have to put it out there. And um you know, I, I decided it would be cowardly not to, uh, you know, because, you know, art's supposed to supposed to express what you think and what you feel. And uh, and if that's like, it is what it is, you know, that's why even for the artwork and everything, like I used like deformed versions of my own body, you know, and um, uh, at the beginning the end of November, beginning of December, we have a, a, a book coming out in a box set that's 60 pages of images that I did with this artist that I really love, um, that we did these 3D scans and she transformed my body into hideous and sometimes kind of wonderful things. But I love that. That's me. You know, that's how I see myself. And so I decided, you know, I'm just putting myself into this project, put myself out there. And if I get criticism for it, so be it. So is, is, is the big mess just sort of the state of the world or is it you? Oh, no, no, definitely me. <laughs> yeah, the big mess is right inside this head. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you're able to like, as the mess is coming out, you're able to craft it and channel it and sculpt it, you know? I mean, it, must, it, it, it has to be really inspiring for other people who feel like 
you know, I feel like my brain is spinning off in all sorts of directions. I don't know what to do. And it's like, okay, you can channel that and you can craft it, you know, if you figure it out and you put in your 10,000 hours, but you can actually do something with that. You don't have to just sit with it. Well, that's true. And, um, you know, the, the interesting part about the big mess is that it evolved into two separate, distinctly contradictory albums. And that started almost from the first song. I mean, the first songs, the first two songs were sorry and happy. One of them was very heavy and <laughs> the other was very crazy and kind of fun and ridiculous. And they yeah. all started coming out in pairs. And that that's where the big mess came from. But there was a certain point I sat with my manager, Laura, and, and we were and saying, maybe you should just do one album and follow it in a couple of years with the other album. And I go, nah, you know what? I would never be able to decide which one to release first, which one represents me, because they're two competing personalities that, you know, uh, it's they they share 50-50 my head. And, um, and also, I said, in two years, I'm going to be into completely different stuff. I said, you know me. <laughs> so this is a snapshot it's almost like a diary like a like a like a an a interactive media diary of where you were at that you can right. look back oh that's where i was at a couple years ago you know but everybody told me how no in this day and age doing a double album is suicidal you know people go to spotify and they're going to do the first three songs and that's going to be it and i go that's okay somebody somewhere you know will get the whole thing and they'll pick through the deeper tracks but i definitely think there's uh, an audience for like a, a disc one audience and a disc two audience. <laughs> very, very separate. You know, because the vibe is so different on these two. And it just was not intentional. But that's where, like, uh, when I, but the point I hit about 10 songs, it was already five and five. And I already knew this is the big mess for sure. Yeah. I mean, the idea of listening, because I, uh, I had uh, Dead Man's Party, the album on cassette. In my senior year of high school, I listened to that fucking tape every day on the way to school and home. And just the experience of that album from just another day all the way up to the end of Weird Science. Well, I um, mean, it, it is a sad thing because my whole experience, like yours, was listening to entire albums, top to bottom. And that was the pleasure of it. You take a journey. Yeah. And um, I, I feel kind of sorry for, and you know, that now there's an audience that likes to make their own this and that and put together on playlists. And I do the same thing. I mean, I got playlists and playlists and playlists, but I, I kind of feel bad that uh, a lot of young people now don't have the experience of taking a journey that, you know, taking, I'm going to commit the time to really sit and just listen to this whole thing and experience it. I mean, the pleasure of my childhood was coming home, like with the white album of the Beatles or something like that. And it's going, Oh my God, I have no idea what's in here. <laughs> I'm going to start with the first song, go to the last song. And, and then, you know, over the coming weeks and months, I'll, I'll start honing in on favorites and things like that. But taking that journey was so exciting. And the one thing I do love now between now and the old days is that vinyl is back. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember, I think it was my third album when they said, you know what, we're not doing vinyl anymore. And I was like, really? And so this new CD thing, and it's like, all right, I guess that's cool. But now the artwork is like tiny. <laughs> you know, I like having the whole big, sometimes you even get like an opening, you know, book of, a, of an LP or a double LP. And maybe there's even lyrics or something inside or something like that. And you follow lyrics and 
I dug that. So I, I'm happy that vinyl is back and that people are researching. In fact, it's so popular that I wish three, four, five years ago or 10 years ago, I'd, I'd invested in a vinyl factory. I mean, you know, if there's like anything that it's so hard to get fucking vinyl pressed right now. I mean, I had to finish mastering for this. Uh, I think it was Feb March of last year to reach a July release. And I had to finish mastering in July for our December release uh, of the, wow. of the, uh, the, the four disc set that's coming out. But it's like, there really is like a six month delay. It takes that long to get vinyl now because they're backed up. It's like, take, take it from me, kids. <laughs> and also turntables are shockingly expensive now like oh my I god got, no kidding. I, 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 a couple years ago i was like oh i think i want a turntable so i can start listening to vinyl it was they were so exp i thought they would be cheap i'm like well it's not really i did i was so clueless i, I was the same i was getting a new turntable i, I did a interview with mark Marin. And I was at his house and he showed me his like uh, system, the sound system. And I was like, I saw this Macintosh turntable and I was like, that looks so fucking cool. I oh, I'll bet it's amazing. And I got home and I like immediately went online. It's like, oh, I got to get one of those. Oh my God, that thing's expensive. <laughs> it's like really a serious investment. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Mark is such a cool music nerd too. He probably just has like, he probably just knows like the coolest of the cool everything to yeah. have. Yeah. And I was really impressed and was about to like duplicate everything he had. Like, so the price tag. <laughs> oh, let me back up just a little. I got to just gotta slow down. Now I gotta, I'm going to do this one piece at a time. But um, yeah, it, it is like a fun thing. And and I was happy to create like I, I get to create a booklet to go in the album i get to create you know like a lyric book with photos and artwork because you know i love the the visuals so i love the fact that i was able to make a visual package again for the first time in many many years because you know a cd just isn't you know what i mean you can make it as big as you want but it's just too goddamn small well now and now it's even smaller because everything's a thumbnail so now it's, it's like, worse it's a thumbnail. everything's everything's this big you know we we, we sort of look back at we had this experience with with music and the media that we had when we were growing up that was it was very precious because you know just like with the boingo tape that i had it was a tape and if i lost it or if it melted in the car which was not an unreasonable thing to happen in southern california it was like a thing to then go acquire another one you know it's like you couldn't like now i don't want to say you know, all the media now is disposable. I don't mean that in the negative sense. I just mean like it's very easy. You don't really have to think about, oh, I just get another Apple Music ad. It's not a big deal. No, but then we really had to safeguard it and protect it yeah. and really be a part of this physical experience. No, but now the, the vinyl collectors, you know, the kids that are into vinyl, they do. You yeah. Know, protect it. They take care of it. It's like, I don't want to screw this thing up. You know, it's like it took work to get this. So yeah. It is to a certain extent kind of moving back to that precious item uh, way of thinking with a vinyl, a special edition vinyl package and that type of thing that, you know, is like a, to the fans that get it, it's like a treasured thing. And so, you know, it's still, you know, a relatively small amount of the music that people are going to hear are going to be through that, but at least that exists again. And I was more than happy to put my energy into making that package, you know, what I thought was something really wonderful. 
Good. Well, and that's why I think it's always important to just sort of follow. I mean, obviously, you know, like we we work with professionals who can sort of guide like, oh, you know, like this is a good thing to do or this is a smart thing to do. But ultimately, release all the release the two albums now, put it on vinyl, like do everything that you feel is appropriate, because I feel like if you don't do those things. And you kind of follow like, well, this is what the, you know, this is what everyone else is doing right now. Then you're going to kick yourself later. Like, I should have just done it the way I wanted to do it. Even if it doesn't work, at least I can own that I chose to do it that way. Exactly. And um, and I really got to pour myself into this like deluxe set because like I created a special, I wanted a thing that was all personal. I'm obsessed with hands. So <laughs> I got obsessed with making a hand, a life-size hand of my hand that you could put as a nightlight next to your bed or on a shelf or something like that. But the detail is <laughs> exquisite, but I had to do 10 casts because I wanted to get it just exactly in a certain symmetry in a certain way, because I've got kind of a freakish hand um, over the years, just like reaching for keys. It's weird. So I, I don't have a big hand, but I've got a very wide Oh my God, your thumb and your pinky are almost a 180, they're 180 degrees straight line. So to make these casts were really difficult. You have to hold it for like 15 minutes and I had to do 10 of them. And it's like, oh my God, I guess it was, it was an incredible process. So I've got a, an army of hands right now in the other room because I have these like kind of plastic molds of all of them. And then the one finally, it's like, okay, I finally got it right. That one went to manufacturing and I just got the test back today. I'm waiting for it to arrive to, to look at them. Very and these are going to be nightlights that you're going to sell. There's going to be a light in it. Or, I mean, you could put it on a, on a table or you could, Fantastic. you could turn it on and it's a light blue and, um, and it's got this insane book in it. So I really did pour myself into uh, making it really special and personal. And it's like, you want to see the inner workings of my brain. Like this is it. Um, and it's funny because uh, I got not just last week shots from Romania of Tim Burton, who's shooting. Uh, oh, man. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about that. He's shooting a thing. A thing with a hand. Oh, uh, I wonder if people know about. Let me just look up real quickly to see okay. if. Uh, Oh, it's okay. It looks like it's a series based on Wednesday Adams. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's okay. Possible. So this is this is in the news. I just Googled it. Okay. And okay. it's yeah. So okay. it is in the news. You see these amazing pictures of thing the thing walking in front of Wednesday. As you remember in the Adams family, there's a hand. Of course. A thing. And and I sent him a picture back of all my hands. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, and we've been having a good time with that because it's so much a part of both of our worlds, this thing with the hand, the crawling hand. And it all goes back to the first horror movie I ever saw when I was about five years old. It was a movie called The Beast with Five Fingers with Peter uh -huh. Lorde. And in this, he's pursued by a hand of a pianist who he probably killed. We're not sure. And, uh, and the hand is stolen and uh, removed from the corpse and it's after him. Every time he's alone, it comes crawling out. And, <laughs> and this stayed with me forever. I mean, literally uh, reoccurring dreams for the rest of my life of hands coming towards me and my family and like, there's a hand coming. And my mom would go, just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't pay attention to it, it won't bother you. 
And it's like, mom, mom, I think, and, and I was always aware that it was coming for me. It was like not right. wandering around the floor and everybody's not paying attention to it. It was always coming towards me. That's why it's very easy for your mom to ignore it because it wasn't coming for her. Exactly. In the dream. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, honey, just ignore it. It's just, <laughs> you know. It's just a dead hand. Peter Laurie probably killed someone. It's Don't worry about it. It's a reanimated dead hand. It happens all the time. They're just, they're, they're harmless. And, Don't ignore. <laughs> ignore it. So anyhow, I've got this like hand phobia. My, my loft is covered with anatomical hands and hands from you know many different eras and and now my own hands for this hand that I've just in the process of making for part of the continuation of Big Mess. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I mean, it is, it is pretty remarkable that you and Tim Burton found each other. You know what I mean? Like it, It's like when you watch two people who bring out the best in each other, sort of form a friendship and a lifetime partnership. Because you talk about, it was interesting to hear you say like the character of the lead singer of Oingo Boingo. When I think about it, it's like when I think about your performances, it's like, oh, there is this guy, there is this character who sort of, I always kind of saw as this like, this dark circus ringleader, you know, who was kind of happily showing his, his, his wares. But then to immediately, not immediately, but seemingly immediately, then dovetail into something that takes you completely behind. You're not performing. No one's seeing you. You're behind the scenes. Was that transition shocking or you just didn't really think about it? Was it refreshing to not have to be that guy anymore? Well, yeah, it was. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is I've performed for all, over half of my adult life. Um, you know, between 1972 and 1995. Right. Uh, you know, that's that's a big chunk of time. But I've always had great phobias about performing, about being in front of an audience that I never was able to work through. So like with everything else for me, it was like this love-hate relationship, this dichotomy. On the one hand, I loved getting out there and performing and doing the shows. On the other hand, I was terrified of it. Um and uh, and I had all this performance anxiety that I was never able to control. And um, so when I got suddenly became a composer, a film composer, I really enjoyed the fact that I could dive deeply into this stuff, but I never have to like do it publicly. And so it was weird when I went through the transition. It was like part of me missed you know, after I finally retired the band in 95, I didn't, 
you know, performers that are really destined to be lifelong performers have to keep performing. They'll always tell you that they how badly they miss it. They need that audience reaction. And um, Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, famously retired what three times? <laughs> couldn't stay retired <laughs> because he just missed it. And I totally understand that. But for me, um, I was like, no, no, I did it for like twenty, however, twenty-seven years, or you know, like however many years it was, and I'm good with that. And I remember thinking like my first Halloween where I wasn't performing, I was, people were, my friends were calling me saying, oh my God, you must be all depressed. You're not performing the first Halloween in ages. I go, I'm so happy. I'm trick-or-treating with my daughter. I'm just having a great time. And I love the fact that I didn't have to get myself psychologically worked up uh, to, to do that. And one of my, one of the bands that really inspired me when I started out was a band called XTC. I was just going to ask you about Andy Partridge. Andrew Partridge famously stopped performing. Yes, horrible stage fright. Yeah, he had stage anxiety. He just, it got the best of him. And I always, I understood that. I understood how that can happen. Because I felt like I was just a couple of steps away from being in the same place. But I never quite got there where I just said, I can't do it anymore. But on the other hand, um, it was a happy switch going from performing and doing the stuff to like getting down and like real heavy with writing for orchestra, you know, and just the process of learning how to do that was like a 10, 15 year process in itself, just like learning that craft. So I really dived into it. And then, you know, randomly, uh, it was funny, you know, getting back into performing, it was totally random again, because um, my agent was came at me, uh, approached me with the idea of doing these Elfman Burton orchestral concerts. And we had an offer from Albert Hall to put together like, and it's like, oh my God, it'd be so much work. It'll be in a year. I have to put together 15 suites of 15 scores for Tim Burton. And they all have to be redone for live performance. You know, right. when I write for film, I'm writing for a studio. It's a, it's a very different way of orchestration than when you're orchestrating for a concert stage. Um, and, uh, and I said, sure, that'll be fun. I'll, I'll do it. Because, you know, it's like 24th anniversary of me being with Tim and they wanted to do the show. And it seemed like a great challenge. And then at that moment, he asked me, well, when you get to Nightmare Before Christmas, do you think you'd sing a few of those songs? And I was like, yeah. But, you know, I, I say things like this all the time without thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But in my mind, it's elsewhere. And it was about six months later. Now I'm starting to work on, or close to longer, work on the suites and do it. And I got to the Nightmare Suite. And I'm going, wait a minute, did I say, <laughs> and I call him up and I said, did I say I was going to sing? He goes, yeah. I go, well, tell him I can't. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sing. There's no way I can do that. I haven't sung in 18 years. There's no way. And he goes, well, it's too late. They already are advertising. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I have this moment, you know, now it's months later. I'm at Albert Hall. I'm doing this crazy show of 15 suites that have never been performed. We had no chance to break it in i had no there's no out-of-town performances there's no nothing no workshop (laughs) no there's just two rehearsals maybe it's three and go in front of an audience and oh my god i mean it was so difficult to play through these 15 suites anyhow and then on top of that i got to sing for the first time in 18 fucking years and i was at the stage door at albert hall frozen 
And Helena Bonham Carter was going to sing Sally for that first ever show. And um, she's on the floor behind me, kind of getting into character. And she's looking at me and she could tell, like, this guy's fucked up. And it's like, I think I was just kind of like frozen. And she goes, Danny, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I'm going in there. And she goes, and she said these, like, these great words to me. It was real simple. She goes, Danny, what the fuck? (laughs) And I thought about that. And it was like, yeah, exactly. Thank you. I mean, that's the story of my life. It's like, I'm going to get intimidated now. But, you know, I had images in my head of walking out there. I never performed in England. And I had images of being tarred and feathered and carried to the street, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, by the way, everyone comes specifically to say, couldn't be a friendlier audience, like right off the bat. But I didn't know that. In my right. mind, they were like, they were going to tar and feather me. I was going to fail horribly. And I was, there he is! Get him! Get him! Cut off his hands! Chase him with his own hands! <laughs> Cut off his hands! And uh, <laughs> But as soon, the moment I walked out there, I mean, as you're describing, I mean, the audience was so warm and so supportive. And there was this wonderful feeling that I'd forgotten what it was like to be in front of an audience that will allow you to fail. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I screwed up, they'd be fine with it. Okay, do it again, start again. You know what I mean? It's like, and um, it was a great feeling. I got through that show and, you know, I said, yeah, I, I can do this. I mean, I just, it was just a wonderful reintroduction to being in front of people. And I think also being in the character of Jack Skellington was helpful because I'd never done that before. You know, I'm singing from the point of view of a character. I'm not even me. Right. And, um, and, and then I really enjoyed it. And I said, okay, I can keep doing it. So here we are like 10 years later about to do like, you know, a Halloween at the, this huge show, which still blows my mind. I, could never oh my god if you'd have told me when i did nightmare before christmas that it's like you're gonna perform this at stadiums in the hollywood bowl eight times and um, <laughs> it's like I go, yeah right and hands come back to life and chase you around your house too <laughs> um, it's not gonna happen so it, it's such a shock and uh and also just what a great Kind of lifetime treat surprise if there was any one movie i did out of 100 and whatever 110 films i don't know how many i've done it's over 100 that was misunderstood when it came out didn't do particularly well if i could wish i mean i've worked on many flops and <laughs> successful most of them so uh but if there's any one of them that i would say i wish upon it a second life you know to be able to provide which is so rare it would have been that movie and it did oh that movie is so iconic now and especially like you know my wife and i being such huge disneyland fans just seeing what happens around this time of year between now and new year's you know where they do the nightmare overlay which is where these are from um you know there's a whole store devoted to nightmare before christmas but it took an entire decade to create that understanding because you got to realize when it came out, they didn't understand what it was. They had no idea what to do with it. 
but that's what's so exciting about just like sticking to you just like we have this vision for this thing and we're going to do it no matter what happens and sometimes it just takes a minute for things to really find the audience or stick or or whatever decade or a decade but it did and now it's like it's never going away like it is a subculture you know it's the the great retribution for me is when it came out i did a three-day press junket in orlando and every single journalist who talked to me asked me the same questions and you know what a press junket is you're doing like 100 interviews they're all three minutes long it's like it's really exhausting and they're all basically asking the same things and it's like the first question is this too scary for kids right i go really not for kids and i go no but there was this perception and then i would hear a lot Santa Claus gets tortured. <laughs> and I go, no, no, not tortured. He's, he's inconvenienced. <laughs> <laughs> he's having a weird day. Having a weird day, but he's fine. It's and, fine. Um, and I said, are your kids afraid of Halloween? Are they afraid to go out on Halloween? I go, no, they love Halloween. I said, then this movie's not too scary for them. But they didn't believe me. Well, no shit. Kids dress up as fucking Freddy Krueger. The guy was a child murderer. Like, what what are we, you know, like this is. Uh, When it came out, it was like Disney's, they pulled all their marketing. Oh my God. I had no idea. I I totally understand. I mean, they just didn't have an ability to understand what it was. It didn't fit into anything they had done. And we did one. I remember there was one uh, preview for kids. And, you know, when kids are going in, they're seeing an unfinished Nightmare Before Christmas, and they're expecting The Little Mermaid. <laughs> 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 kids preview. And they're like, these kids are like, what? <laughs> and uh, and so they came out of that. Kids hate it. And so the, the great thing for me is that generation after generation, people, you know, like I, I go to the, do the live shows. I see so many people bringing their kids. And their people are always sending me little recordings of their kids and and my own relatives like my you know nephews and nieces and their kids are like they love you know they learn nightmare before christmas songs and um i always knew that it was but um nobody knew it back then but that, that's the best feeling since then is that oh yeah of course it's you know it's a weird thing but kids you know it, it, it's for all ages it's not an adult thing that they, they thought when they released it, they really thought it was going to be like some kind of weird adult, kind of weird. Cult well, thing. also, it's like the only kind of goth Christmas thing in existence. You know, it's like it 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 just because it, it they're definitely uh, it seems like there's a it's so easy to be like, well, there's definitely a market for that. Now we see it, but there just isn't anything else like it. And I guess that is a thing like when you completely change the game or redefine something or identify a subculture that hasn't really been previously identified yet this very specific thing sometimes it just takes a minute but it takes a minute and also i purposely i mean we did tim and i we decided to do music that didn't sound like a disney musical right you know and that was also something that caught people uh, we don't know what this is we don't know what to call this music it's not musical music it's not like broadway it's not like what is it? And it, it and it just made it harder to define for them. But to their credit, I think most studios, you know, a decade after a film comes out, if they think there's, you know, somebody says, you know, there's still interest in that. They'd go, no, no, that ship sailed years ago. But Disney did 
one thing they're really good at is having a long view mm-hmm. on stuff. And I think they looked at it and they go, you know, there really is an audience there and we should now put more energy into trying to bring it back and revive it and bring it forward. And they did put uh, energy and money and work into, albeit 10 years later, to uh, bringing it back into the, the world. And they did see that there was a potential, but it took a while for them to wrap their heads around what it was, which I personally, I think it's very understandable, you know, considering, you know, they know what their model is for a successful animated movie and a successful musical. And this didn't fit either model. In fact, I think it's the only musical they did that they didn't call a musical. I think the music was so weird, alienating to them that they didn't know what it was. They didn't even know whether to call it a musical or not. The beautiful part about it, though, and I was I was, you know, I was not a kid when the movie came out. But if I had been, you know, that that film would have been anthematic for me because any of the kids who felt like not part of the normal, popular kid group, any of the delightful weirdos or goth kids or nerds or whatever, it's like, you know, that that a movie like that is a beacon for anything that's not just normal Christmas fair. You know what I mean? Like that is, that's anthematic. So it is, it, it's coming out of an era of media where like now we're very much in niche culture where we understand that very specific audiences can be fed content without it having to be a hundred million people, which was the old media model. Right. But it can still be a lot of people, you know, it's just like, well, we don't have to program to the lowest common denominator. We can just make something interesting that doesn't exist. And that is now becoming the norm which is great yeah no that's that's very true and um it's just each you know each time i do this live um it's just such a a shock it's a wonderful shock you know that it's like i'm really doing this it's like (laughs) when when they approached me to do the hollywood bowl years ago i said no 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 let's do the wiltern theater (laughs) i said hollywood bowl is much too big you're insane i said you know like Let's get a place that's like around 2,000 seats because Mm -hmm. I said, you're going to feel really bad when you get into that Hollywood Bowl and there's 1,500 seats out of 17,000 sold. (laughs) (laughs) It's just spread out there. And I said, that's, you know, because I'm Mr. Optimist. I'm going, I'm telling you, that's what's going to (laughs) happen. I asked my guess, my 1,500 sales for this. But, you know, if you want to do it, okay, but um, take it from me. And it's like, Boy, was I wrong. Well, and, that's uh, a good way to be wrong. <laughs> it's a really good way to be wrong. <laughs> when it's the other way around, it's not nearly as fun. <laughs> no, no. It's like when you're playing in a room that's too big, even if it's like 1,500 people is actually quite a lot of people to go see a live show. It's very difficult to sell even 1,500 tickets. But you put 1,500 people in a 17,000, and all of a sudden it feels like five people, you know? Yeah, so I understand the fear. Yeah, that's like going into a, a you know fifteen hundred person hall and selling you know having a hundred people in there. Having a hundred people show up. Hundred people is nice that hundred people showed up, but you know there's fourteen hundred empty seats. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, and look, I've had a lot of that in my career too. But I'm always prepped for the worst case scenario and everything all the time. I think we just do that as a protective feature because we don't want to. It's it's it hurts a lot more when we get hopeful and then get kicked in the you know just like get our nuts kicked into our throat you know exactly but they always told me you know you know when they say are you a glass half full or a glass half empty person I look at that glass half full and I'm three quarters empty 
<laughs> it's mostly it's empty. empty. No, it's not even a glass of water in there. Which is it? Half full? I don't think so. I think it's it mostly empty. Three quarters, three quarters empty. <laughs> it's mostly empty, and I'm pretty sure that that's bleach or a poison of some kind. And I don't even think that's water. It's mostly <laughs> empty, and that's arsenic. It's gonna kill me. It's gonna kill me. So um, anyhow, it's like it's a real. I'm very excited about uh, next month. And uh, I just want to ask you a couple more questions, and then I'll and then I'll I'll, I'll let you go. But I it, it, we sort of danced a little bit about the transition between Boingo and Pee Wee's Big Adventure when you when you know when you first when you start to see that this is a new direction that you're going in. Um, it, it, was it daunting, more daunting or more exciting or more, because I, I, my understanding is that you're a very visual music writer where you watch the film and then kind of get the ideas for like, this is what I think it should be. Was that very much the experience for that, like right off the bat, or did you kind of have to find your way in? Oh, I definitely had to find my way in. It was very daunting, but it was just, enough. I almost didn't take the job. You know, I had one of these moments of like, uh, I met Tim. Um, he showed me like a rough cut. I went home and I wrote a piece of music and I made it, put it on a four track, you know, player. And I did all the parts and sent him a cassette. And a week later, I got the call from my manager saying, um, you got the gig. And I go, oh, tell him no. And he goes, oh. <laughs> I don't have to spoil the film. I don't want to fuck up their film. Just tell him no. Tell him no. Say, say sorry. And he goes, no, no, I've been working all week on this deal. You call. <laughs> and I looked at the phone. And fortunately, I had another one of those fuck it moments. It's like, you know what? If they want to take a chance on me, fuck it. I'm going to dive in. And, um, and it was just, uh, it was daunting. But fortunately, my weird past, I did have these seven years with the musical theatrical Mystic Nights where I was writing. I taught myself to write even though I didn't, I was a horrible reader, I, I wrote down the parts, I did transcriptions. And um, I had to re-remember, because it had been a number of years since I'd written notes on paper. How yeah. to do and this was way before we had MIDI transcription, you could play parts and print out music. You know, you had to write it all down. That was the daunting part, you know, that I was writing the score down on paper. And I had to go through this few beats of like, Oh my God, I went, do I remember how to even, how I used to do that with the Mystic Knights? And then it finally kind of figured it out again and, and started flowing. And then I really just really got into it and had fun. By the time I was done with it, when I heard the orchestra play back the score to Pee Wee for the first time, I'd never been in front of an orchestra in my life. And um, it was pretty insane. It was like one of those addictive moments where it's like, Oh yeah, this is like a different kind of big. I mean, I mean, I'm used to big amplified music, but this is big with no amplification, in, in a very different way. And I, I, I really decided I wanted to do it. It was a fun era of comedy films because that was my era of when I was a teenager and growing up. Between between your work on Pee Wee's and like Elmer Bernstein with Ghostbusters, it's just like these beautiful, booming orchestral comedies just like elevated these films to to just a whole other level for me. And I don't see as much of that anymore with comedy film. No, I mean you know, look, everything goes through different eras of, you know, what I, I lucked out when I came to Pee Wee uh, in 85, nobody quite knew what to do with comedy music. And most comedies were just scored with, you know, like a band or 
or a small band or a jazz band or something. They, they just didn't know what kind of music to put in them. It was a weird era. It was an in-between era. And, um, and that was a lucky break for me because I came out with this PB score and uh, suddenly it just, I was offered every quirky comedy <laughs> in Hollywood. And it's like, what? I mean, I, you know, I went from zero to a gazillion miles an hour and nothing flat because that, that score stood out. It just, you know, in, in any successful composer or artist tale of any sort, you know, there, there's a lucky thing of being in the right place at the right time. You know, it's if, if Pee Wee had come along five years earlier or five years later, probably would have been a whole different story. But at that moment, there was this kind of like ambiguous sense of like, what kind of music do we put? You know, at the point where I did Pee Wee in 85, they didn't even release, they didn't even mix comedies in stereo. Oh, wow. It was still considered, the music was still considered unimportant enough that it was still done in mono. And we fought to get the music mixed in stereo, which they considered, no, no, we do that for dramas. We don't do that for comedies. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, because I remember when I, maybe in the early 90s, I think when, I think it was Music from a Darkened Theater when all of the score, like, themes came out. And it just, like, the opening scene of Beetlejuice is just perfect with the tracking and the thing. And then the Simpsons theme, you know, I always say, like, if Danny Elfman had just written The Simpsons, he would be, a, it would be legendary. I mean, The Simpsons theme taught me what the Lydian mode was. I didn't understand it until I heard The Simpsons. They're like, oh, yeah, you're just sharpening the fourth. You know, oh, my God, I get it now. Like, so. And to this day, I don't even know what the Lydian mode is. So there you, you go. You just sharp the fourth. You yeah. just take a scale and sharp the fourth. I will take your word for it. <laughs> well, I cannot thank you enough for your time, well, Danny Elfman. My pleasure. And um, tell your audience to, you know, about the Halloween show coming up. Yes. Um, and yeah, that's uh, at the Bank of California Stadium, October 29th and 31st, live to film concert series for uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Live uh, the big, full, full orchestra, choir, the works. And then the big mess. The big uh, mess. Check out Nightmare Before Christmas on live and the big mess. It has just been an absolute joy. The end. ID10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a Prince Charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. 12 American women are flown over to the UK for a Bachelor-style reality dating show. There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd. These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Harry. What? Y'all playing with me, right? You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.